Tonight we're going to move into a new section uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're moving away from uh, the previous passage where where Jesus is um, testing our spiritual motives, uh, and we're moving into uh, the perspective we're supposed to have concerning kingdom values, and I'll explain all that as we move forward. Basically, Jesus is going to bring us into this place where we, where we really consider what we value the most. What is it that really we hold in high esteem? He's going to begin to bring that into inspection for us. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to kingdom people. right? Those who belong to the kingdom of God. And so He's teaching us about what kingdom people look like and what kingdom mindedness looks like. What does it look like to have a mind, the mind of someone who belongs in the kingdom of God. If we claim to be believers, when we hear the word, the teachings of Jesus in this sermon, our hearts should gravitate towards these things, right? Even if maybe our lives don't line up with it, our hearts should desire to be and do what Jesus is talking about here, right? That's confirmation that we are a part of the kingdom. So, so Jesus has just finished teaching us. Uh, when we left off a couple weeks ago about the proper perspective in exercising certain spiritual disciplines, right? What were those spiritual disciplines? You remember? What were the three spiritual disciplines he he used to uh, teach us? Fasting, praying, and what? Yeah, giving to the poor, alms giving, charitable giving. Right? These are three spiritual disciplines that if you're a Christian, we are to act upon, we are to practice in our daily lives. And the lesson that he taught us was not so much on the action of those things. He did tell us how we're supposed to go about doing them, but more importantly, he was teaching us about the motive of our heart behind those things. What's the motive of your heart when you pray, when you fast, when you give to the poor? He also taught us that there is a correct perspective that we're supposed to take in these things. What are we after when we practice these things? When we pray, what are we truly after? Are we after God just answering our prayers for the sake of answering prayer? Or are we after His kingdom come, His will be done, right? And so what's the motive behind those things? So as we move into this next section, uh, Jesus is going to teach us some hard things. I'm just going to kind of prepare you for that. Um, he's probably going to offend all of us at some point in this next uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount, either through our treasures or either through our anxiety or whatever, our lack of forgiveness, whatever. We're probably going to get offended a little bit, all right? Jesus will step on our toes some, um, but I think it's good because here's what he's doing. He's pushing against our preconceived notions uh, about how we live in this world as Christians. Man, if we're not careful the lines between living in this world as a Christian and living worldly as a Christian can get kind of blurred. What's the difference? What's the difference in living in this world as a Christian and living worldly as a Christian? Right. Be in the world but not of the world, right? And so here's what happens. It's Christians living in a certain culture, we can kind of get that little skewed. And so Jesus is going to clear all that up for us. And so he, he, may, he may offend us, he may cut us, but he does so so that he can heal us, so that he can set us on the right track, right? So he can teach us correctly to, 
clear up any of those misconceived things. And it's for our good. We have to remember that. The, 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 the retributions or the, 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 the whoopings, if you want to call them that, they're for our good because they help bring Him more glory. And so here's one thing we have to remember. When we get into hard text, when we get into passages of Scripture that may rub on us and may not fit what we think you know, should be a good positive message, here's something we've got to remember about Scripture. We don't gauge the Scripture by our life. We gauge our life by Scripture. Do you understand that? We don't read a certain passage of Scripture and say, well, that just doesn't fit me. No, no, no. We read that Scripture and say, there's something in me that's not right. We read the Word in order for the Word to change us, right? We don't change the Word. The Word's supposed to do what? Change us. That's what it means to be molded and made into the image of God. As He chisels off those places in us that are not of Him. And He does that through the inspection of His Word. And so when He does those things, be encouraged. Be encouraged to to acknowledge it, to see it for what it is, to confess that before the Lord, to repent of it, and allow Him to change you. It's good to come under those types of things. I want to read something to you. It doesn't really have anything to do with what we're going to talk about tonight, but I just, I think we need to be reminded of this, about a character, um, a characteristic of, of God. Listen to this. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. And you have forgotten, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you, my sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Mm -hmm. So these woodshed moments with the Lord are good moments. And they hurt and we don't like them, but you know what? They are making us into who he wants us to be. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you something, the longer I walk with Jesus and the closer I walk to him, the more I appreciate and cherish those times. Mm -hmm. Because I know that I need it. And so Jesus is going to kind of do some of that for us in the next few weeks. He's going to take us behind the woodshed maybe on some things, but it's good, and we need to be a part of it. So let's move into this next section here on the Sermon on the Mount. As we move into this next section, I want to start by telling you a little story. Um, anybody ever heard of the British pastor uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones? He's a man, a great man of God. He passed away uh, back in the 80s. Um, if you ever get a chance to look him up, read some of his sermons, read some of his books, I would highly recommend it. The man is just amazing. Um, but, but he tells this story um, about a farmer. And uh, one day this farmer comes in 
to the house and to the kitchen, and he's just jumping for joy. And his wife said, what in the world's wrong with you? And he says, I have the best news. God has blessed us. Our prized cow has had twins. One white calf and one brown calf. And he says, and it just happened to come upon me on impulse. I want to commit one to the Lord. And so she said, well, which one? And he said, well, it doesn't matter right now which one. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to raise them, and we're going to feed them, and when they get to appropriate age, we're going to take them, and we're going to sell them. And the one that's ours, we're going to keep the money for ourselves, and the one that's the Lord, we're going to give all that money to the church. She said, okay. A few months later, that farmer walks in, and his face is drooped. He comes in, and he says, I got some bad news, honey. The Lord's cow has died. (laughs) So here's the question. Here's the question. Why why is it always the Lord's cow that has to die? What do you think about that? Why does God's cow have to die? Why couldn't it have been their cow that died? You you see, that that story's humorous and it's funny, but you know what? There's There's a really important truth that I think we need to focus on, that I think Jesus addresses in this section here about why the cow, the Lord's cow, is the one that dies. Because the reason why the Lord's cow is the one that dies in our heart most of the time is because it really shows us what we value the most in our lives. This section that we're going to look at this evening deals with our treasure, our treasures. So if you have your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 6 or look on your outline with me. Uh, the next uh, six verses, this whole passage, Matthew chapter 6, 19-24, deals with our treasures, our possessions, our stuff, and the way that we view those things. And let me just kind of show you how great of a preacher Jesus is. In six verses, Jesus communicates one of the deepest, darkest areas of our hearts and exposes us for what we are. And not only does he expose us for what we are, he also shows us what we're supposed to be. And he does it in the light of something as trivial and as fleeting as our treasures. In six verses, he is able to compose and bring about this teaching that it's going to take me three weeks to communicate to you. We're going to be on these six verses for three weeks. And he does it in six verses. And that's just how amazing he is. I can't communicate the way he does. But we're going to take our time and really go through what Jesus is trying to tell us and teach us about our possessions. He he shows us, man, the human condition as it relates to our possessions. How we view our possessions from a fleshly standpoint. And how we hold them, maybe in a way that's not appropriate. And then he shows us the destruction that misplaced values brings into a life. But then he also shows us and points us to the true treasure that we are to pursue. So we're going to go through this very slowly in these next three passages. So let's start Matthew 6 verse 19. Jesus says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As I said earlier, um, this is the first part of a three-part sermon on our treasures. And some of you may be thinking, as I do often, great, another sermon about money. When the preacher gets up and starts talking about money, how many of you clench your billfold? <laughs> Typically, that's the, that's the perception, right? Well, he's going to ask for something, right? Or he's going to guilt me into giving something, right? Well, why do we have to hear about money all the time in church? Well, sometimes it's that way, right? But you know, I've really thought about that. I've really thought about why we don't like to hear messages about money. I mean, I've really thought through it, and I, I'm not saying I know all the reasons why we don't like it, but here, here's a couple of observations. I think we don't like to hear sermons about money because money is a huge source of anxiety for most of us. Most of us are completely stressed out about money. We may not let on, we may not tell anybody, but we don't want to hear about money because we don't want to think about it, Right? It is a pain for us to write that check every month for that mortgage because we just, we don't like it. There's anxiety associated with money. Money does strange things to us, doesn't it? Money changes people. We say, oh, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. Money changes us. It makes us think differently. And oftentimes, one of the biggest dangers about money is that it gives us a false sense of hope. Security and, and power. You know, we, we think the people with the largest purse have the most power, right? Money is a powerful yet potentially dangerous thing. But here's something I've noticed. This is interesting. The way we look at money and the way God's word looks at money are completely different. Um, we see it. Uh, we see that when we read in God's Word, money kind of loses its status as such a powerful thing. Money's not that big of a deal to God. It's not. God doesn't care how much money we have. And God does not place the same um, value on money that we do. It's kind of like that joke, you've probably heard it. There's this guy, and uh, it was time for him to die. And so God sent the, the death angel to him and said, look, it's, God's calling you home. It's time to come home. And he says, well, I don't want to go. It ain't time for me to go. And he said, look, buddy, you don't get to choose that. Only God does. He said, man, well, if I got to go, can I take something with me? And uh, the angel said, well, I've never had anybody say that before. So let me check. And he flew back up to heaven and immediately flew back. And God said, well, I guess you can take something. But when you get to the gate you got to let Peter check it to see what it is. We don't let sin into heaven, so we got to make sure that it's nothing bad that you're going to bring in. He said, okay. So sure enough, a few days later, the man died, and he rolls up to the gate, and he's got a suitcase. And Peter says, yeah, I heard about you. I need to check and see what's in there. And so he, he opens up the suitcase. Peter opens up the suitcase, and then there are hundreds of big golden bars just beautiful, shiny bars of gold. And Peter opens up that suitcase and he starts to laugh hysterically. And it offends this man. He says, Peter, do you know what you're looking at? That's millions of dollars right there in golden bars. And Peter said, 
Yeah. You know what we call it up here? Pavement. Pavement. <laughs> he said, you have no idea. That's millions of dollars. He said, but let me show you. And they walked into the gates, and he said, see, we just walk on gold here. Amen. That's a funny joke, but you know what? It kind of shares a little bit about how, how God used money. The streets are paved with gold in heaven. How many of us would love to have just a pocket full of gold right now? Right? You see, we place so much emphasis and so much value on something that God paves his streets with. The point is that the value and importance we place on money and possessions is so different than the way the Bible refers to them. God is not impressed with how much money we have. He's not impressed with anything you have. You know why? Because he's the one that gave it to you in the first place. He knows what you have because he gave it to you. And the only reason you have it is because he's allowed you to have it. And so God doesn't look at us and he doesn't rank us by by how much money we have. We make money the issue. God doesn't. And so what we need to find out and what Jesus is doing here in this passage is putting these things in the proper perspective. Jesus talks about money a lot. He talks about money more than anything else while he was in ministry on the earth. Because we place so much unnecessary emphasis on it and he wants to clear it up for us. So um, this is what Jesus is teaching us here about having the proper perspective towards our possessions. And what I want to do in the next few minutes is, is just talk about what Jesus is actually saying here about laying up treasures. I want to define and explain some of that for us. And then I want to close by talking about how we lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. Okay? So the first thing I want us to look at is what is Jesus saying? He does a couple things. He tells us first what not to do, and then he tells us why we aren't to do it, right? And then he tells us what we are to do and why we need to do it. So what's he tell us first not to do in that passage? Do not lay up treasures for yourselves where? On earth. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to lay something up? Okay. Store it up. Some of your translations may say store up, gather. Right? What does it mean to store and to gather? There it is. Hoard it. Pile it up, man. Right? It's that, it's, we have... Uh, we have corn on the cob at our, on our farm that we use for deer. And uh, it's the funniest thing to watch squirrels. Anybody ever seen a squirrel take a whole cob of corn up a tree? They can't do that. Oh, yes, they can. I've seen one had one in his mouth and was toting that thing up the tree to come back down and get another one. That's what it looks like to hoard something, right? You just pile it up, pile it up, pile it up, Right? And so, in other words, to hoard something means to accumulate it for accumulation's sake. To get as much of it as you can just to show everybody, and even yourself, how much you have. Right? What was the passage of uh, uh, Scripture, the parable that Jesus told about the rich man who who amassed all this wealth and he had grain abounding? And so what did he say? He said, I'm going to tear about my barns and build bigger ones. Why? Show the world how much I have. You remember what Jesus said? You fool. Because why? Tonight, your very soul will be demanded of you. Mm -hmm. 
And so hoarding things, we know, is not healthy, right? Now, does that mean it's wrong to have money in the bank? Is it wrong to save? No. The Bible says, Proverbs chapter 6 talks about the ant. God says, take a lesson from the ant. What's the ant do? It gathers and gathers and gathers so that at time of harvest he will have what? Plenty. Right? He's not hoarding. He's saving. He's planning ahead. He says, uh, Jesus said, you don't build a house until you first, what? Count the cost. cost. You've got to know what it's going to cost so you can plan accordingly. Right? Saving is not wrong. Hoarding is wrong. Now the question is, what's the difference? What's the difference between saving and hoarding? Um, 1 Timothy 5.8, a man that does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever, right? What does that mean? It means I've got to work. I've got to have money to provide for my family. If I don't, I'm worse than an unbeliever. In order to do that, you have to save money, right? There's always that unexpected expense, right? And so you have to plan accordingly. 2 Thessalonians 3 talks about um, Paul warns against even associating with people who live lives of idleness, what does that mean? It's those who don't work for a living who depend on handouts all the time. He says don't associate with those people, right? It's important to work to make money because it takes money to live. That's the reality of where we live, right? The c- culture that we live in. Hoarding, however, our possessions means that we deliberately keep our stuff to ourselves to show how much we have. Hoarding is a pride issue. Hoarding's not a, a stuff issue, it's a pride issue. Because we want to show the world what we have, right? It shows us and others what we, that we value what we have more than anything else. It's also the sin of self. Hoarding is a sin of selfishness, which Jesus has already condemned so far. If you remember chapter 5, verse 42, he talks about not refusing anyone who asks, right? Chapter 6. Verses uh, 2 through 4, he talks about giving to the needy. And those who hoard are not willing to be givers. And so it's selfish. Um, Hoarding also leads to the sin of covetousness. We're going to talk about that in just a second. So you understand the difference between saving and hoarding. So when Jesus says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, he's not saying don't save. He's saying don't accumulate for accumulation's sake. Don't amass this great pile just so that the world will look at you and show you, show, say, ooh, he got a lot of money, right? So, here, here's another question. Why is this even a big deal? So what's wrong with having money? So what's wrong with hoarding money? Why, why is it such a big deal to God that he would talk about hoarding in this way? It's idolatry. It's idolatry, right? We're going to get to that in just a second. It's huge idolatry. You see, here's what, here's what we think. We just talked about that. We feel like money gives us security. Many of us say, well, you know what? If I had, if I had more money, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have as much stress in my life. First of all, that's a lie. Ask any wealthy person if they're not stressed. Because if you have it, you've got to keep it, right? And you've got to do something to get more of it. So, so it's not a stress relief to have more money, Right? There's really no good reason for us to amass these great amount of money and not do anything with it, right? So it's a big deal to God 
Because it skews our perception of our treasures. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, the love of money is the what? The root of all kinds of evil. Any kind of evil you can imagine at the root of it is money. Not just money, but the love of it. And so um, all sorts of bad things come from our desire to just build up a great amount of money. Paul goes on in that verse to say, those who have gone off into this craving have pierced themselves with many pangs. That word pang means distress and grief. Those who have been driven to pursue money have just ended up living lives of grief. James chapter um, 5, verses 1 and 2 says that our riches will eventually lead us to weep and howl because of the miseries that will come upon us. Think about that. And it's not because they just have money, it's because of what they're doing with their money. And then Jesus himself, as we get down to chapter 20, verse 21, says that money or our treasures will draw our hearts away from the most important thing. It's inevitable. God knows what will happen, and so therefore he sees fit to address this with us. So we see the issues of hoarding, how it promotes pride, selfishness. And let's talk about this sin of coveting. What is coveting? It, uh, it made a list. What list did it make it on? Did coveting make on? Well, that's, that's one of them. Top 10, right? It's number 10. Exodus chapter 20. God said, do not covet your neighbor's house, their wife, their donkey. In today's language, that's their car, right? Their ox. Anything, God says. Do not covet anything that your neighbor has. Why is that a problem? Why can't I look at my neighbor's house and go, man, I'd do some good things with that house. Wish I had that house. Why is it such a bad thing to do that, to covet? Slippery slope. It, it's not just the actual act of coveting, it's what it leads you to, right? Coveting, coveting something, desiring something, leads you to the drive to pursue that thing, right? And, and James talks about that, about when, when there's something that's kind of implanted in you, a little seed that's implanted in you, and then it, it grows into full-blown sin, and that sin leads to death. Coveting is the same way. It, it creates in us this drive and desire to make whatever we're wanting the most important thing in our life. It's all we see. It's all we want. That's all we're after. And we make it our mission to attain that thing that we want. It leads us to look at what we have or what we want and place a higher value on that stuff than, it, than we should. It causes us to hold that possession in a place that's only reserved for God. And so you know what that's called? Matt just said it earlier. Idolatry. Yeah. You think about it. That desire for the accumulation of stuff grows. We begin to look at that stuff more and more, and we begin to place an importance on it that it doesn't really have. We, we think it's more important than, than it really is to have that. And we begin to, it begins to consume us. The sin of coveting is a consumption of that thing. It, it, it eats you up. 
And you can't rest until you get it. And so the more that you begin to pursue that thing, and then once you have it, here's what happens. We begin to glory in it. Now what does that phrase mean, to glory in something? Anybody know? What's the word glory mean? To exalt, to hold in high esteem, to give credit and honor to. So to glory in something means that we, whatever it is we're glorying in, we hold it in high esteem. We boast in it. We find our joy in it. It's the thing that holds our affections and our attention. You know what that is? It's worship. So this thing that we are glorying in, this thing that we are holding high, we're worshiping. And so we wonder why coveting is such a big deal. I am the Lord your God and you will have no other gods before me. You will not worship anybody but me or anything but me. Coveting always leads to idolatry. The great theologian Arthur Pink said this, Whatever a man sets his heart upon and looks to for support is his God. Let me read that again. I want you to think about that. Whatever a man sets his heart upon and looks to for support is his God. What are you leaning on today? What are you looking to today? What are you holding in high esteem? Whatever that thing is, that's your God. And so Jesus is saying, don't lay up these treasures for ourselves on earth, not to hoard our stuff. And the main reason is because that leads us to all sorts of sin. But Jesus also has other interests at heart as well. There are other dangers in laying up treasures on earth. And he mentions three of them. And before we talk about them, we need to understand what Jesus means by treasure. He's not just talking about money. He's talking about anything in your life that is earthly. Cars, clothes, house, food, earthly stuff, physical, tangible things that affect our senses that we can see, taste, touch, hear, and feel. We must understand these things are things that are given to us by God but only benefit us where? Here. There is nothing of this earth that we take with us to heaven. And so these earthly treasures are only going to benefit us while we're here. And that's a short amount of time compared to eternity. And because this is earthly stuff, it's made of wood and paper and metal and etc., those things are susceptible to destruction, to decay, to rot, to thievery. And that's what Jesus is about to show us. Look at verse 19. When you do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What are the three things he talked about right there? <coughs> Moths, rust, and thieves. That's interesting, isn't it? What do, what do moths do? You ever have one in your closet? They do a whole lot of stuff. They can do a whole lot of damage in a closet, can't they? You ever pulled out a nice shirt, man, and you get ready to 
put that thing on. You may fluff it in a dryer or iron it. We don't really iron it in my house. We just fluff. And you put it on, there's a big old hole. What is this, right? <laughs> Come to find out, it was a moth, right? In the summertime, it's the worst because, you know, they get in the house all the time and you don't, you don't know where they're at. And then all of a sudden, they've just wreaked havoc on your, on your clothes, right? Man, and wouldn't you rather him tear up a $5 shirt than a $50 shirt? Always, most of them have good taste, right? Moths have good taste. It's such a waste, isn't it, to see such a great piece of clothing destroyed by a moth. That's what Jesus is talking about. In, in, in the first century, it meant a whole lot more because you didn't have a lot of clothes, right? You just had maybe one tunic, maybe a couple robes. You didn't have a lot of clothes. And so it was a big deal for moths to tear something up. Russ, what about Russ? Rust is an amazing thing, isn't it? Rust can do some damage. Eye beams, man. Melvin, you know about them eye beams. Big old things, man, that support trucks and whole bridges together. Man, you ever seen something get up, eat up with rust? You can just crumble it in your hands. How destructive is rust? It can take something as strong as an eye beam. And you can just crush it with your fingers. It's destructive, right? And then he, the last one. That's one that I despise the most. Thieves. Man, don't you just despise a thief? I tell you what, I'd rather you hit me in the mouth than steal something from me. You know? I, you guys know we've, we've had stuff stolen a few times from our, from our place. This last time it was a weed eater. You know, kind of a little bit. I'm a little bit relieved because I don't have to weed eat this summer. <laughs> I'll have to. I'm sure I will. I'll have to go buy another one. But, man, you know what it's like if you've ever been robbed when you find out? Man, what's that feeling? Violated. I mean, violated. You're angry, but you also just, you just feel dirty. Man, somebody's been in my space. They have taken what was rightfully mine it does something to you doesn't it you know this last time we were robbed it really did sink into me though because i was angry and i think it, we weren't quite at this place where uh in matthew chapter five i wasn't preaching on that yet but i think i was studying it out when they stole my weed eater and i was reading about how you know jesus said if you call somebody an idiot you've committed murder and i it really hit home with me because that dude was an idiot in my heart. And I'm just being honest with you. In my heart, that's what I thought. And if I catch him, if I find him. And it wasn't just the weed eater, man. They stole my kids' little power wheels thing, man. Come on. You know, what is that about? It's around Christmas time. And so I remember just kind of sitting there and Laura's going, well, you know what? We're going to call. You know, I, got, I have family that's in law enforcement. She has family that's in law enforcement. We was calling the SWAT team out. I mean, that's <laughs> FBI. I mean, she was, she was ready to go for it. I mean, that's just how my wife is. And I just sat down on the couch and I said, you know what? I said, let's just stop. I said, I said, you know, I hate the fact that we got robbed. It, it drives me crazy. I can't stand it. I know how you're feeling. You know, it hurts. But you know what? It reminds me that it's just stuff. Well, TJ, don't you care about your stuff? Yeah, I do. If I could stop him from coming in, I would have. But that's what a thief does. A thief comes in when you're not anticipating it and takes it. You know, locks on doors are only made for what? Honest people. Right? You see, thieves are thieves because they steal. 
And you know what? It's a reminder. Just like the moth and the rust, it's inevitable. Stuff gets destroyed. Stuff gets eaten. Stuff gets stolen. And so I want you to put this all together. If we make our life's goal about accumulating stuff that's going to be eaten and destroyed and stolen, man, how dissatisfying is that? How fleeting is that pursuit? The wisest man that ever lived, the wealthiest man that ever lived, King Solomon, said that pleasures, treasures, riches are all vanity. It's like chasing the wind. I, I, we don't have time tonight, but I would encourage you to go home and, and read Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. He talks about... It reminds me, sorry about that. It yeah. just reminds me of one sermon that I heard. And, you know, if, if you're holding on to stuff, you know, you're holding on to it like this, how are you going to receive more blessings? Sure. If you're holding on to something, you, you can't receive any more blessings. Sure. That's what it just reminds yeah. me of. Yeah. Solomon, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6, he says, I have seen something, a grievous evil under the sun. A man works his whole life so that someone else can enjoy it. All of this, too, is vanity. Just think about that. I encourage you to read that. So, Jesus tells us not to pursue these things that leave us wanting more. Don't accumulate and hoard fleeting. And here's the word that we're going to focus on. Temporal treasures. That's not going to be around in 100 years. Think about it. Everything you have right now, every dime that's in your account... You will not spend in 100 years. You won't have it. It won't be yours. It'll be somebody else's or it'll be gone. Think about it. Everything you own in 100 years, you will no longer own it. Kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? The things that we stress and we worry and we pursue and we try to gain and hold on to, doesn't matter in 100 years. And so Jesus says, don't focus on those things. And the main reason why the main reason why, out of all the sins that we talked about, all the, all the destruction, the main reason why we shouldn't spend our lives laying up these things are found in the next part of the passage. And here's what it is. This is the most important part of this sermon. Listen to what he says, verse 20. But, or rather, lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and still, Jesus says, instead of laying up treasures for ourselves on earth, we lay them up in heaven. So here's the great contrast that he's presenting to us. Earthly equals what? Temporal. Right? Fleeting. Not going to matter in a hundred years. Heaven equals what? Eternity. It's going to matter forever. It's not going to go anywhere. Paul taught a lot of, about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, about the temporal and the eternal, right? He says these, are these things that we can see, these sensual, tangible, physical things, those things are temporal and earthly, and we don't focus on those things, right? He says rather we focus on what? What is unseen. Not that the temporal things are bad, okay? I want to be sure you understand that. The temporal things are not bad, but they're lesser, in comparison to the eternal. And Paul says, so that's why we focus 
on those things. The unseen things are these things that we, we feel in our spirit. Not that we touch with our hands. It's what we know in our heart. It's what the Holy Spirit gives inside of us that, that we know, we hope for now, but eventually will be a reality in eternity. So Jesus is getting us to see that the focus of kingdom people is to be on the kingdom of God, which is unseen right now. The eternal, and not to waste our time on these temporal things. And God loves us so much, He gives us an example of what it looks like to choose the temporal over the eternal. In the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 25, we see two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Remember that story? These are are sons of the promise, are they not? These are sons by which the whole nation of Israel is going to be born from. And who's the first in line? Esau. And Esau goes off one day and he's hunting. And he has, and here's the thing you got to understand about the oldest brother. They had the what? The birthright. Everything that the father had, he was going to pass to the eldest son. You know what that birthright was? To be the father of the nation of Israel. And so here's what we see. Esau comes in and he's hungry. Jacob's making some stew. I love stew. I don't know if I'd give him a birthright for it. But Esau does. I will give you my rights as the firstborn if you will just let me feed my belly. He, and so what happened? Jacob became the father of the nation of Israel. Which you could talk about the sovereignty of God and it was, you know, predestined and all that good stuff. But it played out that way because Esau chose the temporal. He gave up his right as the firstborn so that he could have the fleeting pleasure of a full stomach. And now, what were the consequences of that? What happened with Jacob? He had to run. He had, he had to run, but he ended up being the father of Israel. Esau, what happened with Esau? He will be like a wild donkey living in the wilderness. Right? Didn't the Muslims come out of Esau's tribe? Ishmael. Ishmael, which was before them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're right. So the dangers and the negative consequences of choosing the temporal over the eternal from this story tell us, or should tell us, um, from choosing the temporal rather far outweigh just the quick satisfaction of meeting that, having that pleasure, right? And we're no different than Esau in our heart. As humans, as humans, we crave instant gratification, do we not? We live in that type of culture, right? If I have to wait more than seven seconds for my internet page to load, I'm crying. There's a problem here, right? If it takes more than than 35 seconds for that waitress to fill my drink up, she needs to be fired. We laugh, but that's what we think, don't we? We want it here and now, and our culture has made us believe that it's owed to us to have it here and now. We don't wait for anything. We have no idea what anticipation is. And if we do, we don't like it. I think that's coming down the pipe. There's probably going to be a microchip for long that'll read your mind and give it, have it waiting on you. That thing will short out and fry you or something. But. but we want instant gratification. We live in that culture. And we live in a world that, that here's the thing. Seeing is believing, right? 
And, and we also live in this culture that says how I feel is always more important than what I know is true. Don't we? Think about that. I don't care what's true. It's about how I feel. And why is that? Because feeling is tangible. It's sensual. It's here and now. Right? What I know is true and the hope that I have in the truth of God's word, I may have to wait on a little while. And I don't want that in my natural human condition. But we've got to remember, listen, just like Esau, we, if we choose those things, we'll never fully be satisfied and the consequences far outweigh the reward. These temporal things always leave us wanting more, but more importantly, the moth and the rust and the thieves, they're so much stronger in the temporal world. That's what Jesus is saying. If you treasure up all these earthly things, they're going to be eaten up and destroyed and stolen. But if you treasure up eternal things, things in heaven, nothing can touch those things. Matthew 6.20, he's offering us a better option. Eternal treasures that bring eternal satisfaction. But the question is, how do we store up those treasures in heaven? How do we get there? Obviously, we can't transport up there and make deposits, right? Not, not that if we could, there's to be anything that heaven would need, right? Be like the guy taking the gold up there. I don't need that. What could we possibly deposit in heaven that is of t- eternal value and significance? That's the question we've got to answer. And here's what it is. It's the gospel. And all of us lay on this foundation. And we either, we either lay with wood and and straw and and things that are burnt up, or we lay with gold or gems and precious stones, right? What what he's talking about is what are we building on the gospel that has eternal significance? So there are things that we do. They're certainly giving our earthly treasures, right? Giving money to the poor. That's one of the things. Um, Those are signs of storing up treasures in heaven. But all of these things, the good deeds, the things we even suffer for Christ, the ability to forgive each other, righteous acts, all of those things, listen, I think this is important, they are a part in eternal treasures, but they are not the treasures themselves. All of our good deeds, all of our acts, our Christianity, are, are instruments used to point to something greater. And here's what I want you to think of, and I don't want to lose you, but I want you to think through this. Why do we do good deeds? Why do we give money to the poor as Christians? Why do we offer up praise? Why do we do those things? Oh, it's so important that we understand this. Why do we do those things? Holy Spirit's guidance. Holy Spirit's guidance to do what? To give God the glory. Let me, let me be very clear about something. You don't have anything that heaven needs. Okay? There is nothing that you can give to heaven, to the kingdom of God, that will make the kingdom of God any better than it already is. Amen. Okay? Now, that's not a slant against us. It's a testimony to the greatness of the kingdom. Okay? There is nothing that we have or that we can do that makes the kingdom look any better. So then the question is, why do we do it? so that we can make the true treasure of heaven shine brighter. Every act that we do, every good deed, everything that we do, 
brings glory to God, which is a reflection of the glory that He has bestowed upon us, right? We are mirrors of the glory of God. Every good thing we do in the name of Jesus reflects back on Him and makes Him shine brighter. So what is the true treasure of heaven? Jesus. So here's what Jesus is saying. All this is so important. Don't spend your life pursuing temporal earthly treasures that are going to be taken away when your treasure is standing right here before you. Everything that you need, everything that you desire, every pleasure that you seek is bound up in me. I am the treasure. Christ is the reason why we act the way we do as Christians. All the accolades, you know, the, the jewels and the crown, all that stuff that we hear talked about, what are we going to do with that crown? Anybody know? We're going to lay it at Jesus' feet. We're not walking around with crowns in heaven. There's only one king in heaven who wears a crown. We're not wearing crowns in heaven. All these accolades that we do reflect back on Him. And in exchange for reflecting His glory, you know what we get? We get Him. Salvation. And listen, listen, we, in heaven we get Him in all of His fullness. We don't know what that's like right now. I, it would blow my mind and yours for me to try to explain that to you. I couldn't. What it looks like to experience and have the fullness of Christ all the time right in front of you. Every now and then, right? Little morsels. When you're not expecting it, just hits you real quick. That's right. But it makes you want more. And so, if we cast aside our pursuit of these temporal things, then we have Him. We get Jesus. I want you to think about this. By laying up treasures in heaven, we are focusing on His kingdom, where a God who does not depend on us for anything is... And Paul said this, Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything. Since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So this all-sustaining, all-fulfilling God is up in heaven going, store up your treasures here. Well, God, what do, what do we do? Focus on my Son. Pursue my son. Desire Jesus over stuff. And when you put it that way, you say, yeah, that's what I want. But man, does Jesus shine as bright as that trinket? That's the question. So, Jesus is pointing here to himself. And he's calling his people to lay aside those vain things to have that which is only truly valuable which is Him. One of my favorite passages of Scripture uh, clearly describes what Jesus is, is, is teaching here. It's Matthew 13, 44. Very, very short, but I want to read it to you. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. I love that. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field, which a man found and covered. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. You know what that is? I see the treasure for what it is, and I'm willing to give up everything I have. All that he had. He sold all that he had. All of his stuff. All the temporal to gain that which was eternal. Amen. The lesser treasure in exchange for the greater. 
That's the point Jesus is making here in this passage. Jesus is the treasure that we seek. And this message here in Matthew chapter 6 is not just an instructional message. It's a call to all who will hear. Lay down the temporal. This is Jesus pleading with us. Lay down the temporal. You know what's going to happen. You can lie to yourself all day and say that it's going to be different with you. It's going to be different with my riches. But we know what's going to happen to the temporal stuff. And Jesus says, lay that down and pick me up. Lay down the temporal so that you can gain the eternal. So how does that happen? How do we, how do we look at Jesus and say, you're better than that, that other stuff? Here's how I think we do it. First, it's by, by truly knowing who he is. And not just knowing about him. Not, yeah, I know Jesus. I've heard all about him. Have you tasted and seen? Amen. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Have you tasted and seen? You see, because here's what I believe. I believe those that have tasted and seen don't want that other stuff over him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, what? Will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. A lot of truth in that old hymn, isn't it? You see, when we've tasted and seen the goodness of God through his son Jesus, he is better. And so we've got to know who he is. We've got to encounter him. And after we've encountered him as God, we've got to embrace him as Savior. You've got to understand that he's not just up in the heavens to be looked at. He is the God who came to earth as man to be for us what we could not be for ourselves. And we have to embrace him as our Savior. And so we taste and see, and that Spirit comes inside of us and prompts us to look at the treasures of this life, not through temporal lenses, but through eternal eyes. And we say, man, that stuff that's temporal just won't last. But Jesus lasts forever. I think David understood this. When you read through the Psalms, you begin to understand this point of, of truly grasping the treasure that is Jesus. Let me give you a few uh, songs of what David says. He, he makes statements like this. He says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Psalm 84. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Psalm 73. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 63. David was a man who understood the treasure that's found only through God. Let me ask you something tonight. Can you relate to those songs? When you hear those, those words, I, I'd, lever, I'd rather live as a peasant one day in your course than a thousand anywhere else. Does that make sense to you? When, when you who, who else do I have on heaven or on earth? I desire you more than anything. Does that resonate with you? God... 
pleasures and fullness of joy can't be found anywhere else. They're only found at your right hand and in your presence. You believe that? Your love is better than life itself. I would rather die than go another day without feeling your love. Do you know that? You see, those who have looked to Jesus as their treasure, this truth resonates. And so I ask you this evening, what what treasures are you laying up? What are you spending your life trying to attain? Is it something that in a hundred years will be gone and won't matter? Or are you pursuing the eternal that's found in Christ Himself? That's a question we need to ask. And here's how you know what you're laying up. Here's how you know what you're laying up. Verse 21. What does he say? Where your treasure is, where your heart is. Do you want to know what you're laying up? What's your heart drawn to? What's consuming your mind? I want to, I want to leave you with this. I want you to chew on this. That same theologian, A.W. Pink, says this. I put this at the bottom of your handout because it's so important. I think you need to look at it. <clears throat> he says, Almost all will say that they hope for happiness from God in the next world. But what do they now make their chief good? What are they most taken up with? Both in their pursuit and in their enjoyment. It's at this point each of us must examine and test himself. What things does my soul most favor and relish? The things of the world or the things of God? What is the dearest to my heart? What engages my most serious thoughts? These things, or this determines which I prize more highly, earthly or heavenly treasures. Chew on that. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you that um, even though it exposes some things in us that um, we don't like, but we know and must acknowledge are true, we we understand that you don't leave us there, Lord. You give us the answer. Lord, maybe tonight uh, you have uh, pushed on us a little bit about what we truly value. Lord, maybe you have shown us, God, that uh, Lord, we're, we're pursuing stuff. And uh, Satan or the world or our flesh makes that stuff look so much bigger than it actually is. God, I pray that tonight... Uh, your Holy Spirit has shown us that uh, if we'll throw that stuff aside, if we'll lay that temporal stuff down, that you have for us the eternal, satisfying fullness of your Son, Jesus. Lord, I just pray that we would know that truth, that we would taste and see the goodness of God, and that we would desire Him, Lord, even more than life itself. And Lord, that your church would live, Lord, not in the temporal. Lord, that we wouldn't major on the things that won't matter in a hundred years. But Lord, that our treasure that we're storing up would be to know you and to make you known in the world in which we live for the time that you've given us. So Father, your Holy Spirit is the only one that can lead us to that. I pray that you would. And I pray that you would receive all the glory for what takes place. Lord, when we lay down the temporal for that which is eternal. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.